and where I served as a lead pastor of a turnaround congregation for 10 years. And this church had doubled its attendance. Um, I was being asked to coach other people in the same, similar situations. I was serving on denominational boards. I was deeply and intimately involved in people's lives. And we were doing really good outreach. I was starting to think, hey, I'm kind of important around here, aren't I? And yet, I wasn't being intentional with what was happening 30 feet outside my own door. All this great ministry was going on, and I had figured out a way to make this work in my mind and justify all the great things that I was doing. And I was tired. And I began to wonder, how did I end up here? How could I be the pastor of a growing congregation? But I was also someone who was not very intentional about what was going on in my neighborhood. I got so tired <laughs> that we men ended up moving to Lincoln. And I knew with a change in a new chapter in my life that I would need to be more intentional with my neighbors. Did you know that people live longer? when they know their neighbors? Did you know that in neighborhoods where people know the first name of their neighbors, crime is reduced by 60% or more? When natural disasters occur and the response systems are overwhelmed, the first responders end up being your neighbors. And Jesus says that this neighborhood thing, neighboring, is actually kind of important yet there's actually no noticeable difference between the way Christians and the way non-Christians treat their neighbors. The scripture that we're studying today is something we've heard over and over again, and I think oftentimes those of us who are churched become immune to it. This is especially true if you've spent the whole life in your church, in this church or a church. So I said two years ago we moved to Lincoln. My husband and I now live on a street where there's 21 homes but it's not a through street to anywhere important, so there really isn't much traffic on our road. Last summer, we made postcards, and my girls and I walked around the neighborhood, distributing one to each home, and when we'd come to their door, people would automatically assume that my children were selling something. And you could see themselves, like, brace themselves for that awkward, like, over-eager child sales pitch to be followed by the awkward but polite, no thank you. When we asked one woman, we extended our invitation, and she said to us, well, I've lived here for 15 years. No one's ever invited me into their home on this street. What we were doing, it wasn't a sales pitch. We were actually inviting people to an ice cream party at our house. And after this ice cream social, People thanked us for hosting them. They thought it was a great idea. Several neighbors said, we're going to make it an annual event, right? Some people volunteered to bring extra folding chairs or ice cream toppings next year. And all together, I bet you we had more than 50 people in our home that evening for ice cream. A neighborhood ice cream social. Is that a big deal? Actually, in this uh, I'm too busy, I'm too distracted, I'm too into my self-culture that we live in. 
it is a big deal. We're starting a new series today called How to Neighbor, or you can call it Who is My Neighbor? It doesn't matter to me, but I want to identify for you three neighborhood practices to help us represent Jesus on the neighborhood front lines, to take practical steps toward becoming great neighbors. And I want to begin this series by revisiting what is known as the Great Commandment and challenging ourselves to take the Great Commandment literally. So let's get started. The first of three insights for you is the great commandment is God's simple truth of who we're to love. So the smartest thing we can do to impact our community is actually to live out Jesus's command to love our neighbors. But before we get too far, I want to revisit Luke chapter 10 that Kathy read for us, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The religious expert was trying to trick Jesus with this question, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus turned it back on him and said, well, how do you think? And what does the law of Moses say? And the religious expert answered the question, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we find a very similar answer in Matthew chapter 22. It's on the screen for you, beginning with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So that answer has become known to us as the great commandment. Love, the, love God and love your neighbor. How important was this to Jesus? In Luke chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, do this and you will live. In Matthew 22, verse 40, he said the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. So, none other than eternal life and all the truth of God found in the writings of the Old Testament prophets and God's spiritual laws are wrapped up into this great commandment. So in my estimation, this is one of the most critical teachings Jesus ever taught. So important that it should grab our attention, should grab our passions and our commitments and our enthusiasm. But this is a real challenge for us, isn't it? It sure was for the religious expert. He knew the answer to the original question. In fact, he gave Jesus book, chapter, and verse of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. He already knew what the scriptures said, but here's the problem. He wasn't doing it. He had head knowledge, but no heart response. This guy was not living out the truth. Jesus told him in verse 28, you've answered right. Do this and you will live. But the religious guy's insincerity is shown when you get to verse 29, where it says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's kind of like he's saying, come on, Jesus, who really is my neighbor? 
this guy was looking for a loophole. He's thinking, Jesus, you don't know how weird the people who live next door to me actually are. Jesus, don't you see all the great stuff that I'm already a part of? Now, luckily, we've all progressed so much over the last 2,000 years that nobody in this room would actually be looking for a loophole. Am I right? I found the loophole. That's how I justified being involved in all these gr this great ministry and all these outreach programs. And I didn't know the names of the majority of my actual neighbors. Now Jesus is going to take this question about who is my neighbor, and he's going to blow the question out of the water. Let's keep going. To answer the question, Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan and who our neighbors are and how we are to love them. Look at verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed on by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after, him, he, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So let me summarize this. The thieves saw a victim to exploit. They didn't view this man as a fellow human being. They didn't really care about his needs. They only wanted to take from him anything of value. Now, the religious man saw the injured man as a nuisance to avoid. And what do I mean by religious here? Religion is a person's attempt to make themselves acceptable to God by doing good works. This is often re accomplished by religious rules. Instead of resulting and ending up in a closeness to God, it ends up being lifeless. Religion is always centered on humans and not on God. It's centered on what we can do to earn God's love. So these religious men are avoiding the injured man. Maybe they thought that their service to God was fulfilled that day because they had already attended worship and put their tithe into the offering plate. Maybe they saw no obligation to help this man in need because they didn't do anything to hurt him. Maybe they're thinking, I don't have time for this. And this is really none of my business. I can't stop and help every Tom, Dick, and Harry that's out there. Someone else is going to have to do the work. Whatever they're thinking, they avoided coming into contact with this man, and they passed by him. It was the Samaritan who saw the opportunity to minister to the needs of this man. And even though there was great tension between Jews and Samaritans, they actually avoided each other like the plague. Notice that the Samaritan didn't make any excuses here. There were no ulterior motives, and he simply did what he could to meet the need that he saw. So I wonder where we see ourselves in this story. 
It's not the first time you've been asked this question. First, I hope you don't see yourself as the thief. If you're living like the Good Samaritan, great job. Keep it up. But I wonder if most of us see ourselves as the religious guy. And the point is this. The great commandment is God's simple truth of who we are to love. And as improbable as a Samaritan befriending a Jew, how much more do we care for a neighbor? So who is the person on your street today? Who's in your path? Who are those people who live in the regular orbit of your daily life? They are your neighbors. For too much of my life, I have fudged on this teaching. I've thought, well, everyone is my neighbor. And that means I'm actually neighboring all the time with all these good things that I do. But here's the problem. When everyone is your neighbor, often no one is your neighbor. And when we turn this into a metaphor, then we have metaphoric love for our metaphoric neighbors. Now, I know that many of you are thinking to yourself, according to this story, my coworkers, the parents on my kids' sports team, the people I served on a short-term mission trip, they're all my neighbors. And you know what? You're 100% right. However, that doesn't somehow lessen the fact that our literal neighbors are still our neighbors. Great things happen when we begin building relationships with those who live closest to us and then begin to work out from there. So my second point is that the great commandment is extremely powerful when acted upon. So if we break this down, the actions of the Good Samaritan had four powerful movements as quickly as that story goes. First, it involved compassion. You do this by placing yourself in the person's place or position and acting the way that you would want to be treated if, if it were actually you in that situation. Second, it involved contact. This is where you refuse to allow that person to stay in the condition that they're in. You pull up alongside to help them. You see the need, you respond appropriately. Third, it involved care. Once you make contact with a person in the path of your daily life, you begin to encourage them and you care for them, you inspire them and you reassure them. And the fourth thing that this involved was cost. A ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry is inconvenient and always will be. I think the expert of the religious law and the religious leaders in this Good Samaritan story were trying to define the word neighbor as someone that they could pick and choose who they were going to care for. And that way it would cost them less time and less energy, less investment, less involvement. They could control their own agenda of who their neighbor was going to be. But Jesus would have none of that. He said, your neighbor is the person on your street, the, in your path during your day. Your neighbors are the people who live in the regular orbit of your daily life. And when you represent Jesus to those people so that you're putting forth compassion and contact and care at a personal cost, it becomes a powerful force in representing Jesus on the front lines. We already know this story, don't we? 
I wonder how many of us are acting like we're living like the religious guy instead of living like the Good Samaritan. I wonder if we are excusing ourselves from the call of Jesus to love our neighbors and our coworkers and parents on our kids' team and our literal neighbors because it doesn't fit into our timetable and our plans. Yes, we struggle with this. However, I want you to dwell on this. Great things happen when you bring the presence of Jesus to those you live closest to. So the, my third point is to take the great commandment literally. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he wanted to capture what it would look like if this person who had nothing to gain would take literally what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. The Samaritan saw an opportunity as messy as it was to come to the aid of this man and he did it. And in doing so, he becomes an example of how we ought to respond to others in the same way, revealing when we're responding to their need, we're also revealing the part of the nature of who Jesus is. So what could happen if every Christ follower in Lincoln built relationships with the people who live 30 feet from them? What would happen if we became neighborhood catalysts for the love of Jesus? What would it look like for you to move from yourself being, from being a stranger in your neighborhood to being an acquaintance? And then moving from being an acquaintance to being in a relationship with the people that live near you. The ice cream social idea that we did last summer was really big on relationship building and very low on program. It was just a great way to get to know people and serve them and show hospitality. Now, I recognize that for most of us, we can only do a couple things well. But let's make sure that one of the things we do well is the thing that Jesus said matters most. A good neighbor is always going to trump a good program. So here's what I want you to do. Take out those little pencils in the pew, and on your bulletin, I want you to draw a tic-tac-toe board. Go ahead. Everyone draws a tic-tac-toe board somewhere on their bulletin. And I want you in the middle square to write your address. In the middle of that board, write your address. And you may need, if, if you are here sitting with someone else that lives in your household, they may need to help you, but no fighting over this. If you have to do it separate, that's fine with me. I want you to write down the names of the neighbors who live in the eight households closest to you. Not the person who lives 16 doors down just because you know them and they happen to go to church here too. The eight households closest to you. If you know their last name, scribble it in the square. If all you know is their first name, that's okay. Put it in the square. Do you know the kids who live in that house? If you live in the country, you're going to have to go further than 30 feet. But what are the eight households nearest to you? And can you name those people? Put their first name, put their last name. Uh, kids' names, whatever you know about those people. I'll give you a second to do that. If you live in an apartment, go ahead and do the eight units that are in the hallway nearest you. Whoever, wherever your household is, write down the eight 
names of people who live nearest to you. See how far you get. Some of you are laughing. It might feel a little uncomfortable. It's okay. This doesn't matter if you've lived there 30 years or two years or two weeks. Okay, I want to see a raise of hands. If you can name off the adults, I'm not even asking about kids yet. If you can name off the adults who live in the eight closest households to where God has placed you, raise your hand. Okay. It's okay if you can't, because do you know that only 10% of people can actually do that? So you're in good company with 90% that cannot name the eight households nearest to you. Jesus said to love our neighbors. And sure, this teaching will extend to our metaphoric neighbors, people everywhere in need. But it also means our actual neighbors, the people who live next door. If you have blanks on your tic-tac-toe board, that's okay. Because what I'm trying to show you right now is we're not at a graduate level of how to neighbor. We're going back to kindergarten and the very basics, thinking about our literal next door neighbors before we attempt to love everyone on the face of the planet. I would like Allison and Bevan to help me pass out for you a little bit more um, dignified version of this than the tic-tac-toe board. And we only have enough for one per household. So go ahead and someone raise their hand and Bevan will catch this side and Allison will catch this side. And if Bevan, you would go up to the balcony. Everyone's gonna get a magnet today. And I really want this to go on your fridge. The vast majority of Christians can't name even half the people who live near them. So if you did not know the names of the eight households living near you, this is what I want you to do this week. I want you to find out their names and then write them in. So this magnet goes on your fridge and you can take a pen or a magic marker and jot those names down so that you, it happens to me all the time where I meet someone and I say, what's your name? They tell me and I walk away and I say, what did they say? So you can ask them their name and then hurry and run home and write it on your fridge so that you don't forget their name in the future. Would you be willing to learn and retain and use the names of your closest neighbors? Yes, this can be awkward, but you have to start somewhere. And the reality is they probably don't know your name either if you can't remember their name. So the application for today is that these magnets are supposed to help you know your neighbor's name. Thank you, Allison. If anyone else needs one, I'm going to set them right here. And if someone misses today and they need one next week, because we're in this series for about three weeks, um, we'll make sure you get one. So use the magnet to help you learn your neighbor's name. So put that on your fridge. And then the second step is to write the names of the neighbors who live in the eight houses closest to you. If you don't know their name, find out and then write it in. Because knowing someone's name is a really big deal. That's a, there's a huge difference between hey man and hey Mike, hi Julie, 
big difference between that. The point of this is if you don't know your neighbor's names, it's awfully hard to love someone when you don't know their first name, right? So you've got to learn their names. You write their names on the magnet, and then you learn the names of the people you don't yet know in your neighborhood. And the third step for this week is I want you to pray for those households. That's my challenge, that you would take home the magnetized block map, fill in the eight households, and begin to pray for each home. You can see them going to the mailbox or out in their yard, and you can go up to them and say, hey, you know, this, this is kind of silly. I've lived here for 13 years already, but I can't remember your name. Would you please tell me what it is? Or, I know you already told me this, but would you tell me again what your name is? And then run back in the house. It's cold out, so run fast. Put it on your fridge. Write it down so you don't forget. Maybe you bring them some baked goods. Maybe it's going to snow tomorrow. You shovel their driveway and say, can you remind me what your name is? It's a small step, but we have to start somewhere. And what's going to happen here is you're going to move from a casual wave and a hey man to hey Mike, you learn a name. And then the next step, it moves to hey Mike, how you doing? And then it moves to hey Mike, there, there's something in my garage. Could you help me for a quick second? And then it moves to, hey, Mike, I noticed that your son moved back in. How's that going? Do you see the difference between a stranger and an acquaintance and a relationship? Once you know someone's name, you take it to the next level immediately when you learn and retain the name of the people God has placed around you. So there's one more passage I want to leave you with. And it's just two verses from Acts 17. It says, From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you see that? People are seeking after God and feeling their way toward him in hopes of finding God, though he's not far from any one of us. This passage is saying that you've been placed in your neighborhood for a very specific reason. God put you there, and God put the people around you there. And the reason being is that when these people start to reach out for, for God, if they know you and they have a relationship with you, they'll all of a sudden have some handles to grab onto. When they're reaching out for God, they'll have handles to grab onto if they already know you. You don't live in your neighborhood for the reasons that you think you do. It's not because of how many bedrooms or the school district or the curb appeal. It's because God put you right there. If you let this sink in, it'll change the way you see all different people around you. It'll change the way you drive into your neighborhood and out of your neighborhood. Some of your neighbors are too busy to have a relationship with you but some of your neighbors are dying for a relationship. If each one of you made a point to learn and retain these names of the eight households, I did the math. It'd be roughly a thousand people that we would touch. Let's pray together. Most holy God, what are you going to do through us and the people in our neighborhood? 
I can't even begin to imagine the way that you would reach people and we would be a mission outpost in the community of Lincoln. So I thank you that you've given to us this incredible command that, that we can, that can do so much for us and for the people around us. This command that can challenge us to grow and be more like Jesus and yet also be the handles that people need when they're looking for God. So I pray that you would give us the courage we need to live the kind of lives that you want us to live and that we would take the great commandment literally to love our neighbor as much as we love you and love ourselves. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.